0: It's it's still legal advice, but it's not privilege. So if you sent him a uh, uh, him or her a, a email saying. I think I may have murdered my neighbor. I was drunk, so I don't really remember, you know, what should I do? And they say, well, you know, you really ought to come down and talk to me about that.
1: Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots. Hello,
2: everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Friday, March 29th. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Peter Moldave. Hey, Peter. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Awesome. I guess my first question is, is this podcast covered by attorney-client privilege? No,
0: it is not. It's not? No, it isn't, because... You're not a client. What if I gave you a dollar? Nope. No? Because I'd say no. I don't want it to be. Oh. Um, The the most important reason why it's not covered by attorney-client privilege is because everybody's listening. Huh. So in order for something to be covered by attorney-client privilege, it has to be a confidential conversation. So if I go go at the top of the courthouse steps and I say, you know, I really think you should plead guilty because it's a better deal for you. Uh It's like, well, people are listening. Right. Although that is attorney-client privilege. Communication, it's not going to be privileged because it's not done in a in a in a confidential setting. Other people can hear. It gotcha. has to be a communication between the two, with some expectation of you know privacy. If somebody's wiretapping us, maybe no, maybe maybe that doesn't breach it. But but in fact, that's a it's a it's a good point because, uh, for example, you send an email to somebody asking for legal advice, and then the your lawyer sends it back just to you. That's attorney-client privilege, mm-hmm. and then you forward it on to all your friends, saying, "See, this is what they told me to do." It's it's still legal advice, but it's not privilege. So if you sent him a uh, uh, him or her a, a email saying. I think I may have murdered my neighbor. I was drunk, so I don't really remember (laughs) what, you know, what should I do? And they say, well, you know, you really ought to come down and talk to me about that because there could be defenses. Maybe, you know, did you, maybe we can find some other information and you send it back to see friends. I think I'm okay. I think the guy has got me covered and it has the information that you'd sent to him. Yeah. So the, the information that you had originally sent was, is a attorney client communication privileged. The advice back is, communication and or work product and now you've disseminated to the world and the original statement you made to the person which would have been privileged originally mm-hmm. now has lost its privilege
2: huh Well, that's good to know
0: yeah don't do it okay and in fact in general that's a really good you see a lot of people sending a lot of things on email that they really shouldn't have oh yeah okay that's that's point one um, and in fact it's it's you know email is a great way for email is a lot better than like all kinds of other things in, in terms of gathering evidence because it, it, it stays around and so on. But the um, forwarding of email individually is a problem for you, but also you have to think about it in, in a company context. If you're in a company and there's something called a control group, okay, the people who are the decision makers, okay, so if you have like the president, asking the council for information and he forwards it to the board of directors, that's probably okay because the president board of directors. Those are all sort of the company and they're in charge of everything. Mm -hmm. But if the board of directors then goes and sends it to his cousin, not so good. So you have to be careful. And and a, a lot of times the, the, the sort of the email trail gets out of hand. And especially after the attorney has, has given a, um, their, their, you know, their sort of advice. Um, you, you can go a little bit overboard because if the attorney is asking you to have someone collect information in the context of a defense of the case, even though they're not part of the control group, that's okay. So mm-hmm. you say, can you get your secretary to assemble all of the um, emails that could be incriminating, mm-hmm. you know, and send them back to you? That request and the actions by the secretary to send them back. Those might be covered by something called work product, which is this, a, a variety of attorney-client privilege. Okay. The actual emails may not be, but the actions back and forth may be. So.
2: Okay. So when, when we record this podcast and we send it to several <laughs> thousand people, uh, n- this is not… N-
0: nothing's privileged. No privilege. And, and, and more to the point, um, the people who are listening aren't my clients. Right. And they don't become my clients by listening. And the reason why that's important for me is because I might, they might ask me a question. They say, um, one of your clients did X, Y, Z to me. Okay, and we don't want that to uh, – the other thing an attorney has to be careful about is you can't be on both sides. You can't be giving advice from both sides, and you can't be taking confidential information from one side and using it. To the benefit of the other side, so you have to
2: avoid conflict of interest.
0: I have to avoid conflict of interest, which means um, if, if when you go off and try and hire an attorney, one of the first things they should do is they should say, you know, do I represent somebody else on the other side of a dispute of you uh, with you? Because if they do, then helping you out with that can get into can they get them into trouble. Meaning they might actually prejudice their own client's case right. and. Worse, from the attorney's perspective have to withdraw and not get paid oh man <laughs> that's <laughs> that scenario. That so,
2: so you're the first practicing attorney we've had on the podcast really yeah okay so I, i'm interested to dig into some of this legal sure. stuff yeah yeah absolutely. um now if, we, if so we have a couple of questions from listeners that yep. ask about sort of uh basic legal issues yep do we are we going to be required to like disclose that this is not legal advice and all that, that um, disclaimer i've heard so many times
0: you know, I, I think it'll be obvious when I when I talk, because what I'll say is, look, you know, here's my initial impression, but, you know, it's fact dependent, and you really should talk to an attorney to get actual legal advice. But what, what I'm hoping to do is to um, – and I've done these sorts of – I've done talks in front of lawyers and stuff a lot, and what the, the point of most of them is to alert uh, – is consciousness raising. In other words, to alert people to the things they ought to think about, not to solve their problem necessarily, because – do you ever do you ever listen to Car Talk? Yeah. Okay. So the, they they call up Car Talk and they say X Y and Z, and then you know it's, I'm puzzled. I'm puzzled. And then they say, Are "You sure not W?" And I say, oh yes, W. Well, why didn't you tell them us friend? All of these things. There's going to be a twist at the end, and there's going to be particularity to you, and and really only by going and having really a good conversation with an attorney do you actually get I think good advice. And sometimes the advice is has to be nuanced, and they have to say. This is a better approach. That's a better approach. But you have to choose. But to to do something on a mass scale, there's there's some things you can say. Yeah, there with with fairly good certainty. I'll give you I'll give you what the the rule is. Yeah, but so is but, there
2: a, is it dangerous for you to? Is that why people usually have that disclaimer there in case because like their advice could be construed as legal yeah, advice I mean, and then you get in trouble somehow? Possibly.
0: I I mean again, um, I'm not I'm, worried
2: about it happening now. But yeah, in,
0: and I'm not going to be giving you advice. I'm I I think I'm pretty careful about what I say. Um, I think uh, as,
2: a, as a lawyer, you're, that's shocking.
0: Well, well, you have to be because people take what you're saying to them sort of in, a, well, two ways. In a, you know, literally in absolute terms, and they extend it to things that really shouldn't they shouldn't extend it, it to. I mean, because they don't necessarily appreciate when, when somebody asks. Th- this, of course, happens with my wife too, which is like <laughs> she she asks me something, and I give her a literal <laughs> answer, right? Yeah, and. Yeah, it's a literal answer, but it's not a helpful answer necessarily, and it doesn't. It doesn't. There's there's jokes of all kinds of sorts. I'm, I'm sure about that sort of. Uh, I'm Sure, thing. attorney uh, spouse privilege. Yeah, there's actually actually I heard a good um, management engineer joke that was very very similar the other day that uh-huh. that that, uh, that goes to it. I'm, you want to lay it on shall, us? Shall I lay it on? So here I'm stealing somebody's intellectual property by repeating this joke, and I'll just do it in in. Um, um, you know, summary form, if I can remember it. So, this man in a hot air balloon is drifting by, and he doesn't know. Sort of, you know, he's he's sort of a little bit lost, and he sees this person down below and says, "Hi, can you tell me where you where where I am? I'm I'm lost. You know, I, I need to get to so and so forth." And the person down below says, "Well, you're 45 feet off the ground, going northwest at uh, you know six miles an hour at approximate longitude this and that, and." um the like guy up in the air says, hmm, you must be an engineer. And the person on the ground says, why do you say that? And the person up in the air says, well, you've given me totally accurate and absolutely um, clear uh, response to my question, which is completely unhelpful in my situation. Mm-hmm. The person on the ground says, you must be in management, upper management. The person in the air says, how do you know that? You said, well, you've come up here. You've asked me a question. I've answered it. Um, you expected me. You got yourself into the situation. You expect me to solve it, and somehow it's become my problem. And um, you know, you're, you're angry at me, even though I had nothing to do with getting you in, in your in your way. Mm-hmm. So it's that sort of thing. I mean, you know, I, I some attorneys, um, I think, and sometimes you have to give a literal, almost in an engineering. there's, there's a lot. Of, I think there's a lot of similarities between. Lawyers and let's say, especially programmers, and I could go into that a little bit more, mm. um, especially corporate lawyers, um, in terms of process, in terms of uh, interpretation, or um, actually uh, um, uh, writing and debugging things. I mean, there's a there's a similar process in in, in computer languages, you know, in computer programming, yeah. as in as in writing documents.
2: So you have to be like sort of insanely precise. And correct about the way you state things yes, in, in both and, and, fields,
0: and, and in a way which uh, does not necessarily lend itself to communicating. I mean, in, in other words, if you if I write something down in legalese that I think works well, and I show it to you, you're going to say, "Wow, this uh, this I guess this works," but I'm not really understanding it. But another lawyer will read it and say, "Yep, yeah, this is the way we should do it." Similarly, if you're if you write something, if I ask you to do something and you write it in JavaScript, um, and you say, "Yep, yeah, this actually works," and you show it to me, and I say, "Well, you know, I guess it works," mm-hmm. and I show it to another JavaScript person You know a person who can read it and they, and they can and they can understand it and and so and it 's similar process in terms of um, i mean again I, when I was way younger, I did actually do a little bit of computer programming not not for you know not in any job or any, well actually in some jobs but only in college um, and when I started later going and, and, and writing legal documents, especially agreements. Um, I've adapted, in, you know, in some concepts, some of those thoughts, like modularity, reusability, um, error, you know, uh, removing bugs, writing things in a way so that they, um, so that they sort of are organized in a way that you can, they can use them and other people can use them. And, and I think a lot of other uh, lawyers probably do that, maybe less consciously because right. they haven't been programmers. Although I think there are a fair number of lawyers out there who have been programmers and really understand it the same way. Interesting. And, and that's a different so, kind of lawyer, obviously, than the courtroom lawyer. Yeah. This is the writing lawyer.
2: Right. And that begs the question though why would anyone who had ever done programming as a job choose to be a lawyer then afterwards?
0: So, okay. So um, this dates me. Um, I was in college in the late 70s. Um, I did a little I, – I didn't take any programming classes, but I was a TA and so on and so forth and coming down to graduation. Uh, my mom told me there was no real future, you know, at least a good financial future <laughs> in financial in programming. This was about 1978, 79 mm-hmm. – Bill Gates had just left college i 'm sure his mother had had a similar conversation with him right um, and i didn 't know any lawyers, so I thought, oh, you know, like everybody today, well or maybe a couple years ago, I thought maybe i 'll try law school mm-hmm. so I tried law school. I actually liked law school a lot um, and sort of but but i 'd always liked computers and sort of gradually, after spending a fair amount of time in um, and just regular law jobs sort of gradually went back to where I could combine both of them. Hmm. And, I, and I think, as I say, I think the personalities are sort of similar. For me, also, the fact that I had been, in a certain sense, growing up, you know, with computers and programming in the 70s and 80s uh, and, and now in and 90s and 2000s means that I've had sort of a long background. It's sort of a – it's a second – it's a – you know, some people, like they say – I can't be a quarterback. I'd love to be a quarterback. I'm not fit to be a quarterback, but I know all the stats. I'll be a sports agent you know and that's for me it's a similar sort of thing i'm 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 not a technical person per se but i've I've heard the jargon and I've seen the businesses go on so long um that it's a it's it it was the second career I never in, 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 you know was in mm-hmm. um but it allows me to sort of participate in the industry. With knowledge and have fun and sort of not worry, you know. It's it's as if I'm working for five or ten software companies, and 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 that's fun. Yeah, you used to work for Apple, right? I worked for Apple um, in the in the early nineties, ninety to ninety six. As I like to say, uh, post and pre Jobs. So I never had to work for Steve Jobs. Oh, interesting. But I worked on the when it was a. Um, actually, I guess a much smaller company than it was today, but it, it was it was a lot of fun. So were you out in Cupertino at that I was point? In, I was in Cupertino, yeah. Okay. Spent about six years there and did a combination of corporate law and a little bit of licensing law. Hmm. So,
2: Any juicy stories?
0: Not that I can tell. Right. But, okay. But you can read the book. Okay. Yeah. So...
2: So someone else disclosed it. Well, so. the Jobs book. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. As long as yeah. someone else
2: discloses, it, it's okay. Then,
0: then we can refer to the book. I haven't read the book, but I've, I lived through a lot of it, and I, li- I, I heard a lot of the stories. Yeah. Um, that's all I can really say about that. Okay. But it was a great time to be there. It was. It was. It was um, the Apple at the time was a very exciting place. Um, it was undergoing a lot of. Business challenges, if mm-hmm. you, if you know if you know the time period, mm-hmm. so in, although that's not great from a financial perspective necessarily, from a learning perspective, it's a really good time to be there, and the mm. internet was just starting, mm. and so I did work on I worked on things like um, an early agreement with America Online. That, that Apple had at the time, learned a bit about that. It was at the time when the internet was sort of, in a certain sense, you could see it coming, that it was going to replace America Online, and yet they weren't there. Right. And so all these sorts of things um, you know, made it a really good time to, to sort of be in Silicon Valley, and I, and I, I had a great time there. Hmm. Cool. So what does a typical day look like for you now? So for me, um, what I do is a combination of advice and writing documents um, um, basically for startup companies or for, for if not startup companies, uh, technology companies. So about three quarters, maybe more, of our clients are small startups in the IT space. So um, we do about half of what we do is, uh, and what I do, is... The organizing them you know, incorporating them, helping them with financing, helping them with employee issues, mm-hmm. um, and then with a lot of them helping sell them mm-hmm. or by their competitors or by somebody else, and then the other half is broadly speaking software licensing, although I mean when I say software licensing, really what I mean is agreements relating to computers and software because you know a um, a web services agreement is not actually a license but um, lawyers call them software licensings as opposed to let's say a real estate contract or a something else.
2: So those like user end user license agreements that everyone just clicks OK to in a million and, different and instances before reading yes. Yeah, before reading absolutely. Yeah, uh, um, yes. How binding are those? Have people been held to those regularly?
0: Um, well, I, I think there's certainly the 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 click wrap the shrink wrap and those things. They have they are binding. Okay. Uh, it's it's a complicated question because it, it partly depends how they're how they're presented hmm. and it depends on what they say. But just because you click instead of sign, that certainly doesn't affect the, the whether it's enforceable. In fact, in a certain sense clicking and saying I agree to all these terms. Um sure. Now again there are legal doctrines that say, for example, if in the middle of the I, I think it was like forty seven page iTunes terms of conditions, it, it said by the way, you agree never to disparage Steve Jobs, and if you do, you give your house to him. Mm-hmm. Okay. That sort of thing, although in the middle of it um, and something that you click on, might not be enforceable on general legal principles, much as if it were in your mortgage documents. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, there's this th- thing called unconscionability, and you know there's there, there's a, there's a certain element of of well, courts if they're going to enforce something like that, they want to make sure that a, a customer is not. Um, taken advantage of by, by something that's hidden or unclear, you know, if it's, let's say it's an obscure language. Mm-hmm. Right. But um, s- things like, you know, you agree not to steal the software and you agree not to sue them, those types of agreements, even though they're in shrink wraps or in very short contracts, have been infor- held enforceable.
2: Does, doesn't that feel a little ridiculous to you? Like, I, I, as a person, would need, like, a lawyer on retainer to simply review all the license agreements that I'm forced to accept on a given week. Sure. So doesn't that does, does feel it, it, a little ridiculous? It, it,
0: it, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, I think the other thing that you'll see with a lot of these things, uh, that, there's two things about them. First of all, a lot of what you'll see in them is pretty, pretty uniform, okay, um, which is to say um, don't steal the stuff, only use it the number of times and don't sue them. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually, a couple of years ago, um, and unfortunately I think it's changed now, I went to the uh, Sony PlayStation sites and uh, site in terms and conditions, and it almost said it in those ways. It said, dude, this stuff is ours. When you use it, don't take it. And I think there certainly is a sense in which – I think a lot of lawyers – so if you if you if you if you um, divide the world into consumer contracts versus uh, business contracts, mm-hmm. business to business contracts, you put all those words in them. Yeah, those are enforceable, mm-hmm. right? Um, consumer contracts, you could use the same words, okay, or you could end up with a very very simple thing that says much less, but it's easier to read. And I think certainly there's a sense in which. Those small, short agreements are probably, in some sense, more enforceable because you, you a person, you know, it's like f- five things: don't, don't, don't steal, don't sue. Yeah, you know. Um, so,
2: so in, in a court case, you could make, you could easily, more easily, say this person definitely understood these terms, and you know, sh- therefore, should be held to them.
0: That's right. Um, not to say that the longer terms wouldn't be in, wouldn't be enforceable. I think you still have a situation in which they would be. But here, let's back up. Um, a lot of the times what you see in those terms are the same things that you see in pamphlets that you get with your dryer or your toaster, stuff like that, or your iron. Your iron. Like, for example, um, I got an iron – we, we got an iron a couple of years ago and it had a list of instructions and warnings. Do not use this iron on clothing you are wearing, mm-hmm. okay? Now, you know – Again, you have a lot of these sorts of things. Was that really necessary? And the answer is, it probably was, because probably someone used it while ironing on something and got burned, and then sued the manufacturer. So I think that you see that w- when you start off with a lot of these, uh, you know, early, um, early in the life of these contracts or the uh, arrangements, you find that they're very short,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: then a person, you know, sort of a clever person, on the other side says, "Well, you didn't say." don't iron with it on. You just said it's hot. How was I to know that that would cause me a problem? Okay, fine. Lawyer says, we better put the, a specific example in that. Yeah. And, and a lot of, I think, the, the length of a lot of these contracts happens by accretion from bad experiences that the companies have. And then you have to think to yourself every once in a while, you know, what's the risk-reward? From the from the lawyer's perspective, when management in a large company, when management comes to them and says, is this covered? If they can point to it, say, yeah, it's covered, boss. You right. know? and if they can go to the the court and say, you know, we said ironing, don't iron yourself, no iron, you're done. It, it makes it much easier to get rid of them. On the other hand, obviously, it makes it harder for the consumer to read it. So it it you, it's a problem with, it's a problem that's a combination of you know specificity of language, courts looking for reasons to either invalidate or you know enforce a contract, and they're happier when they see a specific thing. And um, bad experiences and wacko cases, um, and so I think it's it's something which, unfortunately, is you know it's it's it may be just generic because people are smart and want to take advantage of things that so you have to make these things longer or, or you feel compelled to. Um, I'm I'm comfortable with a lot of situations. Well, one thing I think you you ought to do as a lawyer is to go back and say, the, the temptation is just to take a, a you know a long contract which seems to apply to everything and use that as your model and go forward with it. Um, I'm always. Um, Uh, sort of enthusiastic about the idea of starting small and and Mm. I think if you go and again you have to go out in the world and take a look at at different examples of this for example the Apple iTunes one's 47 pages or something like that Mm -hmm. Um, you go to the Google terms of conditions or something like that you'll find they're much shorter or they used to be much shorter you know a page or two Mm. Um, the same thing with I I went the other day and looked at um, like uh, Facebook and Yelp and a couple other sites and you know sort of short short privacy terms short terms and conditions Again, maybe their businesses are less complicated; they can get away with it. But I think those are actually good things to do. You know, again, people can read it if, if it's a one-page thing. You know, and you say, "I didn't, I didn't understand." You know, well, you know, it's one page; you should be able to understand that. So I, I
2: should be reading all these license agreements that I'm or um, and the terms and conditions for every site I'm using.
0: Um, you sure.
2: Right. I mean, theoretically. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: I I um I guess the question is, have you ever?
2: No, I okay. mean, well, no, yeah, once or twice.
0: Yeah. Um. Yeah, you should.
2: I mean, so so if I if I land on a website, say, from a Google search, yes. they have their own terms and conditions. Sure. Am I bound by those at that point? So,
0: again, that goes to the question of um, uh, when you say, are they enforceable, and the mechanism enforcement. So, there, a lot of sites, when you do something, when you register, they bring up a set of conditions. They say, this is what you're looking at. They make you scroll to the bottom, and you say, okay. Yeah. And it's your decision not to read it. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, to me, is much more enforceable. If you have a, a website that says at the bottom there's terms and conditions, okay, um, that may or may not enforce- be enforceable. But uh, let, let's back up, too, because enforceable is a very broad statement. Right. There's two- it's case
2: by case, right? Well,
0: no, but- no. There's two types of situations where you want to be enforceable. It's when you sue them and when they sue you. Okay if mm-hmm. depending on what happens in terms of you suing them because you, they did something bad on the website, you know those notices, which are warnings which you didn 't read first of all you shouldn 't be suing them. You know, why are you suing a website um, and, so, and if the website says i 'm not responsible for stuff you know i 'd be sort of more inclined to agree with that, similarly, if you go off and um, steal their software, which you shouldn 't be doing frankly, most of the time, at least my impression is. That when people go off and steal things, the owner of the intellectual property doesn't sue them on the terms. They sue them under copyright law or something like that, which, frankly, if there weren't terms, it would be okay. But uh, – so they could still sue them. Sure. We can get into a little bit of exotica here. There's something called the First Sale Doctrine, um, and I'll even go and there's, – there's even been some interesting uh, recent case law on that. Um, and the First Sale Doctrine basically says – look, it, it, have you ever wondered why um, – there's a used book market, and yet there's no used computer market, used computer uh, software market. Mm. So you can go to a used bookstore, you can buy a book, and you can um, sell it to somebody else, and that's because copyright law says the copyright holder can stop you from copying, and they can stop you from reselling. Okay, except the uh, the if if a person buys a copy, a physical copy of something that has copyrighted material in it then they can't copy it, but the first sales doctrine says after the first sale, they can resell the copy. They can't make another copy, mm-hmm. but they can resell the copy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, computer software, if it's sold like a book, it could be freely transferable, books are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, software is not sold, it is licensed. And you may have seen that – I don't know if you've seen that yep. that sort of concept. Yep. What sold not, – license not sold means – it's It's like um a, you know a movie ticket or a garage ticket. we're we're not selling you anything. we're letting you look at it. you're letting you be there It's like a you go into a um you rent a room in a hotel, you're not selling you the room even for a short period of time. they're letting you stay there. That's a license mm-hmm. and the first sale doctrine does not apply to licenses, okay Why do I make that distinction in order for there to be a license, there has to be an agreement, okay if there's no license. Um, then the person who acquires a copy of something gets the first sale right to continue to use it. If there's a license, they don't. So think back to the computer. uh, If you have a piece of computer software that has even a very short license, and it's a real license, then then that company can use, regardless almost of the terms of that license, long, short, that company can say there's no first sale. And you've resold this in a in a way that is bad, and we can go after you. If there is a license, uh, if there is no license, they can't. Example of where that happens is in, there's a case in the educational software market. Somebody goes off, they say there's there's a case of, you know this was a bunch of years ago. Um, vendor goes, they they buy a lot of Adobe educational software license uh, educational software that has the for educational use only stuff on it. That's inconvenient, so they remove that tag and then resell the, the software under regular terms, which would be a violation of the Adobe Reseller Agreement. And Adobe goes off and says, no, you can't do that. And they guy said, well, it's for sale. And they go, no, no, no. Adobe software is licensed, not sold. If Adobe didn't have an actual license that was applicable to those things, you could take the tag off and you could just resell it. Hmm. So there's a situation. Does it really matter what the license is? Not so much. But it matters that there is a license, and so there's these things that happen. So, so th- that's an example of where you know, again, someone was going to go off, and the the importance of a license goes sometimes beyond what its terms are hmm. for the for the for the supplier. Um, and there's been case law. There's interesting case law. There's some stuff in both in the U.S. and in Europe um, about situations. Uh, the first sale doctrine. How does it apply to things like downloaded software? It's an interesting question because a book, you know how it works. You can sell the book. But if you get two downloads, can you sell one of the downloads and stuff like that? Mm. Lots of stuff. Lots of interesting stuff going through the courts on that.
2: Mm. So um, do you ha- do you end up working with your clients on defenses for things like patent law violations?
0: Yeah. I mean, I myself don't because I'm not in a patent attorney. Um, patent is a difficult area to, to, to deal with okay. um, in the software area. Yeah. It's a difficult uh, doctrine generally. Um, when you say defenses um, – You know, the the thing about patents is you could be quote unquote innocent and still infringe. Um, A copyright, you have to actually steal something or take something. You know, there has to be some access. We could be sitting in this room, we could think up, you and I together, a great idea. Somebody else could think of it somewhere else. And nowadays, whoever basically files the patent first wins the patent and they can stop us or we can stop them from doing things. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? Um, It's a little bit of a problem for two reasons. One, there are Literally millions of patents. So to go and do uh, to say, um, Mr. Attorney can, or Miss Attorney, can you assure me that I'm not going to uh, violate a patent? In theory, the only way that you can do that is to read all the patents, which you can't do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so there's things you can do. You can you can go and um, look at competitors or possible competitors and read patents and see if they're similar. It's incredibly time exp- uh, time consuming and expensive. Um, and even then, because if I've just filed a patent, it's secret for some period of time while it's being processed, you won't even get everything. So mm. patents are a problem. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, again, if there's a specific patent, you say, am I violating that patent? Sure. You can go to an attorney and say, does my, uh, does my um, invention or my product violate that patent? And, and, and that sort of advice comes up, you know, somebody goes and says, sends you a letter saying you're violating my patent. You, and, and this happens – it's happened to me a couple of times and. Some clients come in and they say, I got this letter from some people saying they're violating this patent. We look at the patent and the patent says, you do X, Y, Z, and we don't do either X, Y, or Z. We're in that same industry and so it might be natural to assume we do that, but we don't. Somebody else does that and we go. We can write them back and say, we don't do those things. So we're not violating your patent. So that sort of stuff, sure, you can do that sort of thing. And you can find some – give some advice to people about patents. But, you know, software patents, I think the industry knows is it's a, it's a – it's a – it's a problem and an opportunity, depending on which side you're on. The patent. I mean, obviously, if you have an idea, there's some ideas that really, uh, or methods of doing things, that the only way you can really protect them is through a patent. Because once you, you know, nobody else does it. You think of this great thing. You say, if I do this great thing publicly, all of a sudden everybody will know how to do it, and all this effort that I've made to perfecting it will, will be, you know, I can't monetize it that's why there are patents to encourage you to go off and do that. The other person says, "Well, I would have thought of it also." Well, you didn't, you know. So I think there's legitimate reasons for patents. But on the other hand, you know, how do, how do you defend yourself against the unknown patent? It's 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 a, it's just a it's a it's a product which has always been the case in the patent area. Hmm.
2: So um, I was in Denver last week, Mm -hmm. and I met with um, some students at a thing called G-School, which is uh, like a developer boot camp. They're sort of training them to be awesome programmers. Um, And we talked a little bit about getting your first job. And some of these people are considering startups. And my advice to them was, when you look at the compensations from startups, they will try to get you very excited about the options that you're going to get. And my advice to them was, Consider those basically worthless. If they end up coming if they yeah. end up being worth something, that's an awesome bonus. But yeah. look at the package with and, and basically ignore those. Okay. Do you think that was good advice?
0: Um, yes. Um, so I believe when I was at um, I believe the, 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 the words when I was at Apple were the journey is the reward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which I always thought everybody, I think, ever, always thought, meant oh, we're not going to pay you very much. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so you better be happy about what you're doing. And I, and I really believe that's the reason you go to a startup. Okay. Um, I, I, a small caveat on the options, they are not worthless. They're worth a lottery ticket. Okay. So how much is a lottery ticket worth? You know, and if you're a mathematician, you can actually, or engineer, you can probably actually figure them out. But th- it's worth a dollar or two. Okay. And, and options have the same possibility of being incredibly valuable or not um, at the, at the very beginning, because you just don't know what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. So the, the – the, but people buy lottery tickets, and they get, they're happy that they have lottery right, tickets. Right, it's kind of fun. It's fun, yep. okay? And if, if, if you think about it, if you had a lottery ticket in which you could marginally influence the, outlo- the, the outcome, you could, that, that's even more fun. Mm-hmm. But if that's the only fun you have and you hate your job, it's probably not a great, great thing. I think the reason you go to a startup is because, um, uh, first of all, it, it's an enjoyable experience. In in the sense of um, um, it's a you know it's a learning experience. Um, you're you're not in a big uh, organization. You have influence over the product. So there's as I, there's I think the the expression in California is psychic rewards, um, and um, you will get paid some money, um, um, and you might get 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 a lot of money. And you don't view it as a as a career. I mean that a startup is not a career. Except in exceptional circumstances. Yeah, every once in a while it happens. And you also can't be confused uh, by the, you know, you, you, can't, you can't say, oh, this is exactly what happened to Steve Jobs and exactly what happened to Bill Gates. And so I'm going to do the same thing they did and I'm going to be just as successful. And, you know, you think to yourself, why is that a bad strategy? Well, how many others are there? And how many people started startups? You're, it's, the, the, the odds are greatly against you. But, it, you know, if you think about it, I mean, the other thing you have to think about is, What's your alternative? You're going to work for a large corporation in which they're going to pay you slightly more, or maybe a little, maybe you know, maybe significantly more. It depends.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, is your job stability any better? Is your, is your uh, do you have more control over your environment? Do you like your boss? Are you working on something that you're interested in? It's you know, in in the in the old days, meaning let's say the 50s and the 60s, and maybe even the 70s, you had a there was a career path within a corporation. Where well, you went up, you became maybe became management, and stability was prized. Working twenty years at a company—wow, that's that shows dedication, and that's a great thing. You know, dedication is important, but inspiration is really important too, and experience. And I don't think there's any particular. Um, I, I, I think when people go off, even if they fail at certain things, they learn things, and it, and, and and it's really you know, y- y- you go to five different jobs you learn a lot i mean i've only in my in my life done really three jobs okay Three different employers for Mm -hmm. for anything uh, for any long term job, you know, not not including summer jobs. Mm -hmm. I learned an incredible amount at each one. Okay, and I don't regret at all either one, any of them. Could I have done the same thing? Looking back, could if I if I'd only spent three years in each job, would I would I have learned uh, a lot? I probably would have learned just as much. So, could I have? If if I if the if things had worked out right, would I have liked to go off and do two or three more jobs before I do when I'm doing what I'm doing? You know can't rewrite history, but it wouldn't have been bad. It would have been a good thing. And, mm. and, you know, in, in my own situation, I, I, as I said, I don't regret anything that I've done. I had a really good time in all of my jobs in my in current job too. But, you know, would it have been worthwhile to get a uh, experience in a couple? I can think of for my own purpose, you know a couple more places that it would have been nice to work at you know just you know theoretically mm-hmm. work there for two or three years really get, ex- get exposure to that and it would have been really useful mm. okay
2: so I have a couple sort of uh, legalist questions sure, that I want to bet. get to um, so the first one is um, if an employee of a company does work on a project on their own time yep um, what are the risks of that thing being owned by their employer
0: so most of the time um, if you work for any sort of competent company, they've they, you've signed a, a non-disclosure and assignment of inventions agreement. Mm. And the non-disclosure and inv- assignment of inventions agreement, which you should keep a copy of, um, um, will, will, will basically state what you're supposed to – what you own and what you don't. And mm-hmm. in general, okay, um, and it's, it's partly a very state-to-state, but in general you should expect that if it's within the scope of the business of the employer – if it relates to their uh, um, intellectual property, if it's an extension of their intellectual property, if you did it on their time or using their materials, they own it. Okay, mm-hmm. so you 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 work you you have a you you come up with this great new uh, chart-topping song. You would you would probably own that if you worked for a software company, but not if you worked for a recording studio. Mm-hmm. Okay, you come up with this great new software application. You would work that you you might. Own that if you worked for the recording company and not for the software company. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time, I have to say, I, I, I find it very, I, I find it very suspicious that someone will come up with a great idea working for a software company that isn't owned by the company that employs them. Um, if you think you're going to do that sort of thing, unless it's you know so clearly outside the 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 mainstream of the company, it's really something you really ought to f- get permission for.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, for two reasons: first of all, because it'll piss off your, your employer. Okay. And secondly, they might own it, and if you think, well, uh, I'll do this by myself and I'll just get funding, the funding sources are going to get very, very nervous if your employ- if they think your employer owns it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's something that you really ought to. The, the ownership is something that you really ought to think about and clear um, up front. Sometimes some some employers will do that. They say they don't care if you if you if you work outside. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of a lot of my clients. It's happened to they've they've gone to their employer. They suggest something, to the employer that says, "Sure, you can do that." And in fact, do you need some money? <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll give you ten or fifteen thousand dollars. You know, to, to put in because I think it's a great idea. So, uh, you know, it depends on where you are. Your your employer may be more enthusiastic than you than you think, or they may say no. But it's, it's sort of better to, to find that out earlier than later.
1: Right,
2: makes sense. Okay, so this is a question from uh, one of our listeners, Greg Millette. And yeah. he says, uh, "What kind of legal notices might I have my users sign when I release a product or website?"
0: Okay, so let's back up, um, and um, before you go off and start doing things like that, one of the things when you said the word "you," um, I would encourage you to do is to think about incorporating or forming a limited liability company. So it's not actually you. Mm. Um, in terms, uh, if you're ter- if you're thinking about liability, if you're thinking about making this thing into a business, there's lots of good reasons to create. The, the business early on, so that the business owns the intellectual property and so the business is doing the thing. So, mm. if a corporation goes off and makes a mistake, you know, in general, the corporation's assets are at risk, but the owner's assets are not. Mm-hmm. And is that true for a sole proprietorship? A sole proprietorship, it's, uh, if you say literally what is a sole proprietorship, is just a person. Okay, So it is not true. The person's entire okay. assets are at risk. Same thing if it's a general partnership, which is just a couple of people working together. Mm-hmm. But you can be – for example, in Massachusetts, you can form a single member, a limited liability company. It's, it's relatively straightforward. You go to the Secretary of State's office. This is not legal advice. It's just an observation about uh-huh. how you can do that. You can <laughs> okay. go to the uh, uh, Secretary of State's office, form it online, pay $500 a year, and, you're, and you have a limited liability company. And I, I can't promise you that that will eliminate liability. But I can promise you, it's better than this. I can tell you, it is better than not having one. Mm-hmm. Okay, because if you have one of those, you can say it's the limited liability company doing it. And by the way, the reason why I say a single member limited liability company instead of a corporation is because from a tax perspective, it is a is a uh, um, it's something called a disregarded entity. It means you don't actually have to file a separate tax return for the limited liability company goes on as if you're a sole proprietor on your Schedule C. So it's a very convenient and Mm. low-cost way of doing it for a single person. Mm -hmm. If you have more than one person involved, then you really ought to think about something. LLC might be a good idea. A corporation might be a good idea. You're going to be filing tax returns. You're going to be doing a bunch of things you need to talk about legal relationships. But for a single person, that's step one. Step two is when you release your thing into the wild – um, I guess the question is, where is it going? If you if you release it through the Apple uh, iOS store, okay, um, then, you know, again, th- things change. But the last time I looked, which I think, and I think it's still the case, is if you don't provide a software license, the Apple iOS store provides a default one for you. So in a certain, and it's not a bad one, okay, It it says things like, you can't make extra copies and don't sue me. Um, so in a certain sense, you're probably reasonably well protected that way um, because you have a license. If you, if you are uh, – um, I don't remember what the, the deal is with the Google store. At, at any rate, with, um, with uh, Android apps and things like that, you can release them yourselves. And so in that case, you have to think about putting an equivalent license agreement in place. You want the license agreement for two reasons. One, you don't want the first sale – you want the first sale the doctrine to apply. You want to be able to control distribution. Um, secondly, uh, you want to put those lang- that language in don't-sue-me language, um, mm-hmm. and that, that's helpful. Um, a website – you know, again, websites are a little bit different than apps. You're not giving anybody anything, so you don't worry about first sale. It's not like they can take the website and sell it, mm-hmm. okay? They'd have to copy it in order to do that as opposed to an app where they can just transfer it. And to copy it itself is covered by copyright law. Mm-hmm. So you're really more concerned about the don't sue me. Um, and as I said, I mean, you know, is it do people sue people on websites? It can happen. It it would be good to have a terms of service, you know, on the website. It can be fairly short. It can say more or less, "Don't sue me." Mm-hmm. Um, in many cases, you also should have a privacy policy. If you do business in in California, for example, there's a statute that says you do private. You need a privacy policy if you're collecting third party information. So th- it is it is important, depending on what your business to, is, to have these terms and maybe a privacy policy in place when when you're when you're out there. Um, the, these agreements can be very short. I mean, we're, we're talking about a page, two page, three pages for some stuff, depending on what you're doing.
2: Would it be dangerous to write it yourself in sort of plain um, English?
0: It's dangerous. Um, I, I guess what I'd say is um, I, I really hesitate to go there. Um, I guess what I'd say, it's sort of better to have one that says don't sue me than not to have anything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's there's in, in a website, it's sort of a little... Uh, i mean i i 'll tell you what a lot of people go to websites that they think are good and copy it and change the names yeah and and in general, although that 's not great, okay um, you do have to be aware of two things first of all in theory those those things are copyrighted, although again then they, if they 've copied them from someone else it 's not like they claim ownership. Um, I guess the other thing you should do is this happened to a client of mine. Is if if you copy your website, if you copy the terms from your uh, from your competitor's website, you ought to change the phone number to your own phone number. <laughs> that sounds so good. The competitor did not do that. As a result of which, my my client find out about it because their customers started calling him with complaints.
2: Oh man! <laughs> Thanks.
0: So it is. There are dangers associated with those sorts of things. And and um, you know what what you think works for one set of type of business might not work for your business. So it is a little, it is dangerous. I mean, mm-hmm. y- you really ought to think about, you know, if you bought a house, if you're selling your house, do you want to use your neighbor's house sale documents or do you want to use ones that are for your house? You know? Yeah. Cause you might inadvertently sell your neighbor's house. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Awkward. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, one last question. Sure. So imagine that I'm, uh, I'm going to have to take over your job tomorrow yep. and I'm going to give you one sheet of paper Yes. Upon which you need to write like the most important instructions for me to do a good job at this.
0: Have you taken Have you, have you taken the bar exam? No. Okay. Well, that would be number one.
2: Is that why I've become a lawyer.
0: Taken be- Taken past the bar exam. Uh, let's
2: actually. Okay. Let's assume that I've done that.
0: Okay. So you're you're a lawyer from a law school. You've come in. You yeah. haven't you haven't done my job, mm-hmm. and a one page instruction.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So let me see if I can fit this on one page. Uh, first, of all, you got to understand the industry. You got to understand the business in the industry. Mm-hmm. Okay. How yeah. do I? How do I do that? You, you gotta. You gotta. You gotta do it. You gotta. You go out and talk to people. Read everything. You know, uh, read books on the industry. Understand and figure out. Go and talk to people who, not the lawyers. Talk to the business people. I'm talking about how to be a a, a lawyer in the software industry. Mm-hmm. You gotta talk to people in the business business community. Find out, understand how do people make money. Um, what motivates them? What's the difference between, you know, being paid. A royalty, selling your company, uh, different types of royalty and pricing things, figure out what makes businesses tick so that you understand it. So when the business people come to you and they say, I wanna do X, you, you understand different ways of doing X so that if they thought, thought things differently or if they haven't thought of something, you can give advice, that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Second thing is you have to understand the technology. Okay, you have to go out and you know, educate yourself about what is the difference between the iOS uh, iOS and how it works and how it's sold. Android and how it's sold, and a website, and a computer, and a and a server, and what's a virtual, what what what's a, a VMware? You know, what's the Amazon cloud? All of these things, which are sort of the technology, because um, some like for example in the open source area, if you do stuff on your on a server. That has very different legal consequences than if you distribute it as software for people to use. And mm-hmm. So when someone says, I'm going to go on and do X, they say, well, and I'm going to host it. You know, do you really mean host? Or Do you mean distribute so they can host? Mm-hmm. What it, so you have to understand the technology and the, and, and the, the mechanism of things going. And you, you have to do that in order to write the agreements for them. The third is obviously you have to understand copyright law, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, probably some patent law and technology, uh, and, uh, patent law and uh, trade secret law, maybe trademark law. So you have to, you have to, you have to know business. You have to know technology. You have to know, um, you have to know intellectual property law, at least in those areas. Um, you have to be able to write as well as a computer programmer can write using special words. Mm-hmm. So you have to learn those special words. So you have to go off and get copies of agreements that other people do and see what – look, go into the websites. If you're going to write website terms, go and see what Google, Yahoo, um, all those others do. Figure out, you know, is there, are there, is there commonality? Get used to what is a common legal term, uh, thing like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you have to go out and find clients um, – that trust you to do all those things who you can talk to and who pay. Okay.
2: So that's, that's the bottom thing of the page is <laughs> well, get paid. You, you
0: know, again, I mean, it's possible to do the rest of it and not get paid if sure. you're independently wealthy and you can still do a good job. But generally, lawyers and other people, even software developers, in, in fact, like to get paid too, you know. <laughs> so it's, it, you have to find the, the clients that pay also. Uh, they don't have to pay all that much, depending on how efficient you are. After you've done this for a while, you can be pretty efficient. But you know, so you don't, you don't need uh, the client that pays you, uh, you know, a million dollars every year. But the client who expects you to work for a month for free, you know, and then is outraged when you give them a bill, it's not so good. It's also not good satisfaction. Sure. It, it probably also would be a good idea to find other people in a similar area and talk to them and, and, and get, um, you know, uh, other um, professionals in similar areas. Get a group like um, accountants, um consultants and things like that who, who, who you can cross-refer um, mm-hmm. stuff to and who also you can talk about issues with um, that you trust. So all of those things. I think you can fit that on page. Yeah, I, I'm not sure you can do that tomorrow, mm-hmm. okay? I think it takes a little while to do that. Um, I mean, it's a
2: specious I, question kind of intentionally. Yeah, but I, think
0: that, but I think a lot of people who are in similar areas, or if, let's say if you wanted to do this in a couple of years – it's certainly something that you can you can learn or transition yourself into. My own view is um, I actually teach a course in software licensing over at Suffolk Law School. And um, I don't think this is an egotistical or, or, or even actually false thing. I tell them that it's the most single most useful course that they will take in law school. And the, and the reason is because they will see, as you've mentioned, a license agreement at least every day. How many times – do you indict a criminal defendant as as a lawyer or as an individual how many how many houses do you buy or sell mm-hmm. how many cars do you buy or sell how many times do you trip and fall it happens okay how many license agreements do you encounter every month you know if you're if you're like me or like most people you probably see a license agreement daily and you do you understand it you know mm-hmm. so it's actually something that comes up absolutely every day first of all secondly it's an industry in which lawyers actually should be used to, to write these things, <laughs> as opposed to like shoe manufacturing, where once you got the shoe design, the fifteenth or twentieth shoe or things like that, not so important that the lawyers involved. Mm-hmm. Um, th- uh, three, um, it's a very. I find it a very interesting area because there's a lot of variables, there's a lot of um, a lot of excitement, there's a lot moving. You know, again, shoe industry a lot changes because the styles change, but it's still shoes. Not nothing wrong with shoes. OK,
2: this is not legal judgment on shoes. Yeah.
0: And it's and from a legal perspective, it's not it's not sort of it's not what you would call cutting edge. I mean, there is actually stuff there. I mean, I I shouldn't denigrate them because there's a lot of interesting stuff in design and stuff like that. I mean, maybe maybe farming is a different thing. But 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 we're gonna get a lot of angry email from farmers. Sorry. sorry. Um, But the farmers who use the apps. There's, there, you know, if you think about what's what is happening in the world that is advancing us forward, that is interesting, that is changing every day, that's the software industry. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, I mean, sure, the biotech industry is too. Great idea. Similar things in the biotech industry. I I can't do the biotech industry because I haven't been doing it. I could have if, maybe if I started off. Right. But So I think similar. there are other industries, but for me, it's very exciting. And, and I think it's the sort of thing that everybody should be interested in. And again, how many recombinant uh, drug cocktails are you going to do in a day? I don't know. But you're going to see another software license tomorrow.
2: You can get a lot of angry email from doctors. Excellent, yeah. From bacteria and yeah, viruses. Yeah, bacteria and viruses. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, um, Peter, I think that wraps it
0: up. Okay. Um, thanks very much for coming by. You bet. I My appreciate pleasure. it. Okay, good. Cool. Thanks.
2: Um, So today's podcast was recorded and produced by Chad Pytel and edited by Edward Lovell. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcasts slash 42. Um, Peter, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, uh, what's a good way to do that?
0: Sure. Uh, Best way is either to call the firm, 617-350-6800. Sorry. So, And and the firm's name is Gesmer Optigrove. If you forget anything else, you can look for Gesmer on the web, Gesmer, G-E-S-M-E-R. And you can send me an email, peter.moldave, M-O-L-D-A-V-E, at Gesmer, G-E-S-M-E-R.com.
2: Does your email signature have one of those? This is intended as private information, and if you get this email... Australia and all that. Exactly. Absolutely. Good. That's how you know you're working with a real lawyer.
1: You bet. Okay. Uh, Thanks for coming by. Thank you.